And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And it's my absolute pleasure to now welcome to the show Katerina Bryant, who is a writer and she has written a beautiful memoir and it's called Hysteria, a memoir of illness, strength and women's stories throughout history. And Katerina is based over in South Australia and is very kindly joining me over the internet. Hi there, Katerina. Hi, Amy. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. And uh, how are you doing at the moment? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm going pretty well. So many people in Victoria are getting a little bit frustrated with all the lockdown restrictions, but we're making it through and a little bit jealous of the people over in other states. So yeah, hope you get to enjoy the beauty of spring. (laughs) We're all thinking of you in Victoria and hoping for the best. Thank you for that. That's It is really nice to hear. And it's your first book, so it's a huge momentous occasion, but it might be a little bit odd releasing a book and not doing the kind of usual travel around to the different studios, go to the in-person book events. But how have you found releasing this memoir, which is so personal, and we will get into that content in just a sec, but how have you experienced that in such an, an I guess, an odd time, you know, doing so many of these events online and, and not in person? For me, it's actually been quite fortunate because many of the people who I want to connect with with the book may not be able to go to events for reasons of being unwell or due to health concerns. So it's allowed me to reach and communicate directly with my audience. And also it's allowed me to do more events and talk to more people as I'm over in South Australia and can't always uh, nip down to Melbourne. So it's worked out well in the context of living in and releasing a book in a pandemic, which is never ideal or a joyful time. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like people in Melbourne particularly are in this constant state of tension and looking at the figures every day. But I I really do understand what you're saying about that accessibility of these events. And it's been so great to be able to engage with all of these thinkers, not just in Australia, but even overseas. All these academic conferences are all being held online and suddenly you can attend all of them. And all these great um, international events with people as well, other different thinkers, they're all streaming these great discussions. And yeah, it feels like this is a great time to be having intellectual exchange. Yeah, definitely. I was so happy to be able to witness the Melbourne Writers Festival from my own home and listen to one of my favourites, Elizabeth Strout, who lives in Massachusetts, I believe. So just the sharing of ideas, as you said, has been a really positive part of having to be more online. It's great that there are silver linings. (laughs) It's always good to reflect on the positives. There are so many different points at which you could enter this book because as the subtitle suggests, it's a memoir, so it is very much personal, but it's also interweaving your story with the story of other women throughout history. 
And it is really great the way that you've put it together. And I can tell that you did so much research because it shows through the way that you've structured the book and interweaved all of these different reference points and ideas. So to give people an idea of where we're going to in terms of the content and the themes of this memoir, let's start with your personal story because then we can bring in the other women and draw out those connections. So as we were discussing off air, these experiences of illness can be quite quite personal and it's often difficult for other people to understand how we experience illness, especially when it is invisible. And of course, mental illness is by its nature often but not always invisible. And I wanted to ask first up about how you've experienced mental illness yourself, particularly the ways that it has expressed itself in your life and how you've been experiencing it as a visible thing because you talk about the way that people do see how you experience it at times when it happens, but also how you experience it. And I was really interested in that because often people who experience mental illness might try to hide their experience and try to draw in and not show what's happening. And sometimes they're able to do that and sometimes they're not. And that was one really interesting tension that I wanted to understand better. Yeah, that's such a key part of understanding my own experience of illness is the tension between the visible and invisible And then as a result of that, the tension between being able to move through the world unnoticed or my body becoming hyper-visible and therefore stigmatized and politicized. So there's that really naughty relationship there. And as you said too, within that, thinking about how illness presents itself within an individual this perhaps severity or perhaps the nature of the specific mental illness means that we are not always able to be invisible even if we were to wish it. And what happens to those of us who cannot, I'll say conceal, but I'm not a fan, I guess, of that idea because it indicates shame and I don't think there is always shame within the experience But those of us who cannot conceal aspects of our illness are often the ones who receive the most stigma. Mm. I'll talk a little bit about my own diagnosis, which I chart in the book. And it's always a little bit difficult to talk about because it is complex and there is not a real medical understanding, which means it's hard to explain. But my illness of non-epileptic seizures sits kind of within the middle or the overlap or perhaps neither of neurology and psychiatry. And it means that I experience seizures, but this experience cannot be explained by looking at my brain. So there are opinions that it is neurological Um, but we just don't know enough about the brain yet. But there are a strong history, and I talk about it with the idea of hysteria, which if I had lived hundreds of years ago, that's what I would have been diagnosed with, is the connection to mental illness. What I come to terms with in the book, that for me, it doesn't matter what it is, and it doesn't even matter why. 
what I find is important and key is feeling at home within my body and learning how to live in a generous and peaceful way. And I do that through connecting with other women who've also been diagnosed with this illness throughout history. Mm, Yeah, that's a really great way of saying it. And I think when you say the word conceal, it's true. I don't think it's possible to say that everyone would experience shame. But as you say, there's this level of stigma and also ableism that exists in society so that when you see difference of some kind, particularly if it's physical difference, but even, you know, mental illness and and that exhibiting difference, people kind of respond in really surprising and kind of shocking ways at times. For example, if you were on crutches and you were struggling to shut your bag and someone came up to you and zipped up your bag for you without asking, you'd be like, well, when was that ever appropriate to kind of just come up to a stranger and Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there are so many weird responses and sometimes really invasive responses that people can have when you exhibit a difference and they feel like they need to step in and do something. Definitely. And while I had been somewhat prepared for the stigma of being unwell in a public space, what I found the most unnerving was the interactions I had in medical appointments where I was not trusted to be able to speak to my own experience of living in my body in a way that they viewed as correct. So while stigma in daily life is dangerous and unpleasant, I found that iteration of stigma the most damaging because it immediately impacted the care I was receiving. Absolutely. That has real life impact. If someone won't trust your history the way that you have described how something is happening, it absolutely undermines what treatment you get, whether someone takes you seriously, whether they actively listen to you, whether they trust future ways of you recounting your story and what's happening with you. And it's something that has come up in previous conversations that I've had, particularly around women's experience of health issues and illness. And so whether it's mental illness or physical illness, or obviously they're not often distinct, Mm -hmm. um, it seems like there is this really uh, gendered element to the way that health is delivered, even to the point where I was discussing with a doctor the other day and saying, well, women make up 50% of the population. Why isn't obstetrics and gynecology a mandatory component of study for all GPs? Why is that an elective And the DP agreed with me. That's just one example of how there's this unconscious and conscious bias within the medical system. And yet when women highlight this, they're treated as being irrational or emotional. Yeah, I think because the medical system was built to be a patriarchal structure, even now when we're seeing closer to gender parity of people practicing medicine, those structures of patriarchy are upheld. And in addition to that, the intersections with class and race and the stigma around specific illnesses like mental illness means that care can be very much determined by who you are as an individual rather than we all receive equal care, which is our kind of understanding of a universal healthcare system in Australia, but unfortunately, in my experience, isn't the reality. 
Let's bring in Freud. (laughs) I really can't stand Sigmund Freud, but he's so important to this book. (laughs) And I I understand why you've used it because, you know, when you talk about hysteria, Freud is definitely right up there in terms of that word association and the gendered elements in his psychoanalytic theories. I did a sociology subject about gender and sexuality and we were talking about penis envy and all of his theories around the clitoris and I just literally couldn't yeah (laughs) validating him like that just killed me inside but um the way that Freud has talked about women particularly and medicalized some of their experiences and even sexualized as you recount in this book their experiences and infantilized them it's so wrapped up in illness mental illness as you show but also women's health a range of illnesses i was surprised to find out that even people who were likely to have actually had multiple sclerosis in you know the 19th century were diagnosed with hysteria and so there's this long history of discounting women And certainly Freud is a person who's shaped the way that we've looked at women and their psychology. So I guess I wanted to ask about Freud and he's not the only psychoanalyst you cite. There is a a woman, um, the first woman that you talk about, Edith, who's also practices psychoanalysis. So I wanted to ask about that and why it's so important to this book and your research into trying to understand what was happening with you. And um, feel free to bring in Freud whenever it feels right. (laughs) Well, Freud is important to mention in the book because his idea or rather interpretation of hysteria as an illness is what he called conversion disorder, which he named because he believed that this illness converts feelings or instances of trauma into physical manifestations. So that terminology, conversion disorder, still exists, I believe, in the latest DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and we're up to the fifth edition. So we're still really relying on a lot of Freud's ideas around this concept of conversion disorder today. So I couldn't not talk about him, but I didn't want to have the touchstones of theory in this book be male. It was really important to me to draw out the women who experience these things. But at a certain point, how do you do that when all the women I talk about but one never wrote about themselves? So in the Katharina chapter, which is where I discuss Freud because Katharina was a case study of his, I try and look past or maybe through his lens to understand who she was. And through that, I'm able to draw out little inconsistencies in how she behaves. He paints her as very young and naive, for example, but she was not an actual patient of his. He was on a holiday and she approached him on a mountain, seeing that he'd written doctor in the logbook where he was staying. So that doesn't convey a naive woman to me. That conveys a woman who has a lot of tenacity and strength and desire to understand herself. So I try and look 
past Freud a little bit, but also acknowledge how he has shaped a lot of our thinking about illness. Yes, well, it's unavoidable. If you hadn't referenced him, you would have been wondering why. So (laughs) there's so many different kinds of tensions that exist in this space, but that's another one is that hysteria and the historical understanding of that and how that has led into conversion disorder and how so many women particularly who exhibit neurological symptoms or issues can be labelled with that and whether or not it is that is another question and putting labels on certain people can be quite detrimental to them if it isn't actually that. So it's wrapped up in so much complexity, isn't it? And you also say the word functional is another example, this idea that there are things that happen within our biology that are organic. And of course, that means that they're valid and true. And then there's the way that the medical profession describes non-organic things as being functional and somehow born of abnormality or born of the mind and not of the body. And it's just so, so problematic and really difficult for anyone who's caught up in it. Mm, It definitely shifts the onus onto the person experiencing these symptoms as a way to almost blame them for their experience of illness and to not take responsibility, I think, as the medical profession should do to help. And as you say, I think for some of us, labels are really helpful. For example, when I think about how in adulthood I was given a diagnosis of OCD for my childhood that really helped me place some things and work some things out and that was a really profound experience for me but with this iteration of illness a label has not allowed me to find resolution it's more about the daily acts of care for myself and as you say I don't believe in there being a divide between mind and body. I think the way we parcel different parts of our health out means that we don't ever receive holistic care. Yeah, and for doctors, I think, to treat a whole person and to realise that they have very whole lives, that these people who are coming for help want that help and also want to have a fulfilling life and a productive life and one that makes them happy. So it just seems like that's something that can be quite missing is that holistic whole person view of someone instead of looking at their arm or looking at their brain or looking at their foot. Mm. And without that view, it objectifies, I suppose, us as a simple problem or collection of symptoms rather than a human being who can be trusted to explain their experience of their body and therefore should be listened to. Removing that element removes the kind of sense of humanity and therefore the need for respect within that medical interaction. Absolutely. I want to stick with Katharina while we were here because I found that story just so interesting and the way that you look at it in a critical way. And so when you're reading the case study, and as you say, um, this is kind of like an informal case study because it wasn't really rigorous. She wasn't actually a patient. She 
as you already recounted, came up to him, took her own initiative, said that her nerves weren't particularly good, which is something that so many women recounted as saying, you know, in the early 20th century and 19th century is this kind of idea of, oh, it's my nerves, um, which seems like such a kind of broad brush description of someone's experience. But there was, yeah, some interesting points that I wanted to ask about that were from that studies on hysteria, which was co-authored with his mentor, Josef Brower. And um, it looks at the lives and treatments of five so-called hysterical patients. Presumably they were all women. I believe so. Um, Although while we think of hysteria as particularly gendered, during that time with Jean Chacot's neurology uh, hysteria wing, there were men there as well. So I wonder too how much, while it is seen as a women's illness and a women's diagnosis, how much do we colour in the past with narratives we're used to, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, there is the distortion of the time itself and then there's our distortions looking back. Yeah, and sometimes I've noticed we're very quick to say that that experience of history is gendered and rather sexist as if today that is not the case, which it very much is. So we almost colour the past as something hurtful, I suppose, or something as causing harm without acknowledging that that is where we come from and we are living an extension of that. And while it may not be as overt, it is still very much beating underneath every medical interaction. Yes, it's almost like it's denying the continuity that definitely exists. Yeah, and it also denies the strength and the kind of veracity of the lives those women lived during their time. It paints them as patients, not people, and it paints them as being a victim to their circumstances, which I'm sure those circumstances weren't easy. But one of the women in studies on hysteria, whose doctor said that he hoped she died to what he thought relieve her of her suffering, then created one of the only women's groups for Jewish women that had no men within the group's structure. It was all women. So there's still a lot of activism and strength within that time. I loved that story about Bertha Pappenheim. Mm. That was just really, really great to hear because it's so true. I think what you've touched on and hit upon there is that to go through something so horrendous and to be treated with suspicion and almost like an object, the way that medical treatments at the time were conducted, it's denying the fact that these women had so much strength, had so much resilience. These women, like nearly all women across history who've done anything, have encountered patriarchy and sexism, particularly overt, I guess, in the past. And to get through anything like that means that you've had to dig deeply, that you're not really getting the full picture when you're only painting them as these kind of childlike victims. As as you say, you know, Freud's saying that she's naive and that part to me I think is really striking. 
Yeah, and the same, I think, is true of Jean Charcot's hysteria wing, where the women within that wing lived very interesting lives. It was a part of the Salpêtrière Hospital in Paris that, as opposed to what was then called the asylum, these women were able to walk freely throughout the hospital grounds. Many had romantic relationships with their doctors, which, of course, I don't think is a good thing, but just illustrates how they were able to leverage their power within these circumstances and makes you rethink who was controlling and who was being controlled in all aspects in that it's murky and I think it's always been and continues to be murky. Not to say that sexism did not profoundly affect these women's lives And it would have been ideal as it would be ideal now for those instances of sexism not to be within their medical care. Yeah, it's the grey that exists. And I think it's a bit harder, as you say, when you're looking back through history and looking at these women who have been through a medical system, whether it was in France or Germany or elsewhere, as you say, you're not hearing from them directly. And that is so difficult for any historian or any researcher when you don't get to hear someone's words, whether that's spoken or written, when they are constantly being reported to you through a medical and a male lens, you are having to constantly interpret. And yeah, you don't have this kind of unrivaled access to someone through their diaries, through their letters, through, you know, these things which we who study history hold so dear as like gold because it truly is. And um, of course, it has its own challenges. But there was one person who you did have some personal access to in a way, that kind of direct access. So maybe we could bring her in as well and talk about how you got to understand her. And uh, that was Edith. She was born in 1897 in Poland, but lived a lot of her life in Germany, in Munich and Berlin, and um, sounded like such an intellect and such a really, uh, as her dad said, an independent thinker, someone who had her own opinions. What did you discover about her? I loved researching Edith because I think so much of her came across in the words she used to self describe. There's just so much life and fight there. So with Edith, she was a psychoanalyst in a time where it was not usual for women to be psychoanalysts. And she was also Jewish in a time in Germany where it was unfortunately dangerous to be so. She was fiercely left-wing and a part of her work that held that her entire life, which I particularly admire from her working in Germany to when she eventually escaped to New York, was that her fees were always incredibly low so that anybody of any financial background could see her for regular treatment, which I think is just incredible. But she herself lived a very interesting life in that she spent some time in a Nazi women's prison and there she wrote about 
the idea of depersonalization, which is a symptom I experience as a part of my illness, but it's also a symptom that is quite common for all of us, whether we're experiencing mental illness or not. And it's that feeling of being outside of your own body and not recognizing yourself. I explain it most often as that feeling of outsideness in shock that would be experienced, say, in a car accident. So Edith, while in prison, wrote about the women around her as experiencing depersonalization and a sense of self by being in this hypertraumatic circumstance. And she also wrote a lot of her own poetry throughout her entire life, which I was able to access through being in communication with the Library of Congress in the US and just see her handwritten poetry often on her pad of paper that had her letterhead, uh, like her psychoanalyst letterhead, written in messy scroll mix of German and English So she was an incredible person to look into her life because she determined a lot of her life through her kind of sheer will, but also was able to write about her own life too. She also had that really interesting experience of witnessing depersonalization in that prison. So she, I guess, got to watch it at such a intensely close and also even in a prolonged sense because she was there for quite a while. But it was also really amazing to hear that she escaped somehow from Nazi Germany at the time and got to America eventually. And you write that she continued to live her life as a child-free, unmarried woman all the while diligently writing. So it sounds like she was so driven in terms of her interest and passion for that area and that she was, I guess, a a pioneering type of person. Yeah, definitely. To continue to write papers while in prison just shows an unbelievable fortitude. And I might be projecting here as well. But I wrote a lot of my book as it was happening. So I would come home for medical appointments and write and write through difficult experiences and tap into the joy of words through there. So I can really see the power and drive of her in continuing to write and create. And it was my great joy to be able to print one of her poems within the book to share a little bit of how incredible she was. Yeah, it's so great to read that. And it must have been amazing to see the the pictures and the scans of, of her actual handwritten documents. I can only imagine the excitement. <laughs> yes. I find that that's such a really great case study in a sense and a great chapter because when I was reading it, I don't think that's projecting too much because it seems like I can understand how you would relate given that, you know, I know that you're a PhD candidate in creative writing and so writing is something that comes naturally, no doubt, to you, whereas others perhaps who are experiencing illness, maybe writing isn't the way that they're expressing or dealing with ideas that come up in their treatment. Maybe it's drawing or music or, you know, there's so many different ways that people can express their experiences and try to process their experiences. So I I guess I can see why it would make a lot of sense to you being a writer and having that great ability to put your words down? I think too because of all of the women I've written about 
there will always be a nature of projection because I feel as though I'm reaching for these people who I share so much with but cannot know. And I think that's okay. I think we see history as something that is one-sided and one-dimensional and we see historians as objective, but I think we cannot be objective. Freud definitely wasn't objective when he was writing about Katharina. We can only explain who we are and view the people we research about through our own lens and do the best we can within our own lens. So, so true. I wanted to ask about part of that chapter as well, because you do describe numerous writers. One of them is Ernest Hemingway. Another is um, Jean-Paul Sartre. And they're both great writers that I admire personally. And Ernest Hemingway, the way that he describes depersonalization. I also agree with your assessment. It's literary, but and obviously I can't understand it from a very personal perspective, so only you could do that for us. But the way that you write out what he's described it as, it hit me what it might be like to experience that and the, the way that it could be experienced. And maybe I'll read it out for people listening so they can get a sense of what we're talking about. You say that he wrote of a moment on the battlefield where he felt, quote, my soul or something coming right out of my body, like you'd pull a silk handkerchief out of a pocket by one corner. And then he goes on to say, writing that his soul, quote, flowed around and then came back and went in again. So the way that you said he's showing how quickly it can be taken out, pulled out, you know, like the slip of silk against a pocket and then to come back in. And yeah, it just, it felt like a really great way of expressing something which seems so difficult to express to someone who hasn't experienced it. Yeah. And the thing I love about that quote is that his words show that there is no pain there. It's just a little bit uncanny and you can almost feel the slip of the silk. It's beautiful and something I very much desire to do in my own writing is to create a sense of understanding even though this experience of my individual illness is very rare And then within my diagnosis, it's so individualized that nobody will have the exact same experience of it as I do. So how can we share what it's like to be in our bodies and how can that create meaning for other people? I've read people writing about their own illness like Fiona writes, The World Was Whole, And while I don't share her diagnosis, in parts I felt so understood and it made me look at myself in a different way, that there was so much thoughtfulness and a weird, perhaps, joy of understanding there that her experiences shaped the way I looked at my own. So there's a lot to be said for reading about how other people experience the world through illness and disability or through many other lenses. Mm, that's so, so true because yeah, I, can, I really understand what you mean when you're saying that, that it is so valuable. And even I wonder, you know, from your perspective, having 
written a memoir focusing on when you first were having these symptoms, going through that experience of trying to find answers and looking for a why. Like I I know that's something that you bring up is you're wondering why is this happening? You know, I want an understanding so that I can fix it or sort it out or at least have a label so I can then get treatment for it. And that's something which I think a lot of people grappling with any illness will feel is that why is this happening? I want to fix this. That story, that timeline, that journey that someone goes through from symptoms, trying to get a diagnosis. And I guess I wanted to ask about the fact that there isn't necessarily an ending mm. for people sometimes. And, and, you know, I've spoken about chronic fatigue, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis, and I've spoken with people who have been um, experiencing some of the most severe symptoms of that. And that, you know, in and of itself, even if you got a diagnosis of that particular issue is not an ending. Do you know what Mm. I mean? It's something that people keep going through and even now have found out may not actually be what they have. There are other things that could be causing the symptoms they've got. So when you're in this uncertainty and when it's not so cut and dry, you know, when it's not like a black and white situation, when you don't have a journey that has a start, a middle and an end of, oh, I'm now recovered. How does that change you? Because you you kind of mentioned at the start of our conversation that you needed to find some kind of acceptance or to be really within yourself, to to feel your own body and to find some kind of acceptance. And I wanted to tease that out a bit and to understand how one deals with the fact that there isn't that really neat narrative that everyone wants and expects in a way because it provides some kind of comfort and certainty. Mm, Yeah, this is one of my favourite things to talk about because it's so ingrained in how we view illness as a narrative and within that narrative structure there's always a resolution of recovery or less so death. But to exist with a chronic illness is something that's not often spoken of, even though it is quite a common experience. So how do we conceptualise something that's happening to us that has never been thought of as something unresolved? How do you live with something that's unresolved when the world you exist in tells you that you need to find an ending, find answers and go back to what you once were? It's something that took me such a long time and a lot of work to accept that this was a part of my experience and this illness will continue to be my daily experience and that's okay there's nothing wrong with living in this way the most difficult part is trying to adapt to a world that does not accept this narrative and that was something I really wanted for the book was to show that we continue to live and there will not be a neat ending here except to find some kind of acceptance which I will say is transitory and comes in waves. And if I say get a cold, I am infuriated because how dare I have a cold on top of my (laughs) daily experience of chronic illness and my resolve of acceptance wavers. And that's okay too. It allows you to reconsider what daily life should look like 
and what a joyful life should look like and how we can navigate the world when our bodies are seen as other. Mm, Yeah, I can understand that. And I wonder whether that frustration can really ever go because, as you say, it's something that's transitory, that acceptance. And the narratives that are used in illness, like that one must fight and resist something, like Mm. there's an, an active war going on that needs to be strongly and defiantly fought by the person experiencing it. And if you don't win, you must not have tried hard enough or you must not have been optimistic enough or you must not have met the right holistic doctor or Mm. specialist or used the right medication. It's hard to ever come out of an experience like that a winner or coming out unscathed. I wonder going through this book and looking at that narrative and realising that it's just so completely not how it's experienced by so many people Is there a language, is there a framework, is there something that needs to be brought into our parlance, into the way that even the medical system talks about illness and also the way media talks about illness? Because I remember sitting in a waiting room watching a morning TV show, which of course is not known to be particularly nuanced. (laughs) Um, It's always played in waiting rooms too. I've seen way too much morning TV. (laughs) Exactly. It's in every health setting. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I remember watching this young woman and she had experienced an eating disorder and the way that the media wanted to frame her experience as a story, you know, neat, tied in a bow type story, like someone experienced illness, they grappled with it, they overcame it and now they're fully recovered and it's a happy ending. Mm. Maybe that does happen for some people, but it feels like it's setting an unrealistic expectation and it also feels like it may actually distort the experiences of that person. I don't know. It may end up having this one narrative that we keep going back to in our public discussions and debates and reflections on illness. It feels like it may not only distort someone's experience but put them into constant conflict as you've already said like how do we have a different narrative that's acceptable because you say in the book that people are really uncomfortable with illness and we won't get like the golden idea or the solution here but I just feel like surely there has to be an answer there has to be a way that we can create language to create concepts that are more accurate that are more helpful than the ones that we've got. Yeah, it's really interesting, these ideas about wanting to frame other people's experience within a narrative structure. I recently wrote a piece for The Guardian about how I've noticed a lot of people wish to frame my own experience of writing about illness as brave and how, in my opinion, that's a problematic idea because I don't see it as courageous writing my own story. It was Mm. the simplest thing in the world for me and to frame it as brave when it was not in my own experience means that they are placing shame on me, this imagined shame I must have overcome to write my story. And I think brave and inspirational has been used to classify disabled people like myself for a long time when we are not doing anything particularly brave or inspiring. 
So in coming to terms with reframing this narrative structure, which is so ingrained in how we think about illness, I think the very smallest step forward is to try and introduce some kind of neutrality when we speak about other people's experience so then we can listen to what their experience actually is. If we say we, for example, me, I experience non-epileptic seizures instead of I suffer from non-epileptic seizures, which many people have inserted that terminology and do so with a myriad of illnesses and disabilities, it frames my experience as one of suffering before I've even spoken, whereas there are hardships within my illness, but there's also a lot of funny moments and silly moments and moments of love between myself and my family and my dog. It's complex and nuanced as all of our lives are. And to be neutral about how we describe an experience so we can really listen is a good first step, I think. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> That's such a beautiful way of saying it. Katerina, I'm so grateful to you for your openness and the way that you've shared this great information, this beautiful research that you've done, and the way that you've weaved it together with your own experiences of mental illness is it is so valuable and something that I don't think I've really read in the way that it's been done here. So I'm really grateful to you for that. And I really hope that it does open people up to different ways of talking about chronic illness and also mental illness and to talk about it, as you say, in a way that is neutral and that enables people to hear and listen with openness and with non-judgment and to be open to receive whatever it is that is that person's experience instead of placing these oppressive artificial narratives onto people who, as you say, have rich, varied and fulfilling lives, even if there is a lot of upheaval within them. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and for you to engage with the book in such a compassionate way has been a real joy for me. Oh, well, thank you. It's been my pleasure and I'm sure many people listening as well. I've been speaking with Katerina Bryant and we've just been talking about her new memoir, which is out through New South Books. And uh, I do recommend picking it up. As you can tell, this is a book for everyone. And um, I'm sure that you'll be very intrigued to uh, read all about these brilliant women who are spoken of and um, shared through Katerina's book. It's called Hysteria, a memoir of illness, strength and women's stories throughout history. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.